This is Kick-Ass News. I'm Ben Mathis. Summer is here and mosquitoes are too. Nothing can ruin a barbecue or an afternoon by the pool faster than those miserable little bloodsuckers. As soon as I start getting bit, that's my cue to head back in the house. But it really doesn't have to be that way. Don't let mosquitoes bug you this summer. True Green Mosquito Defense eliminates biting mosquitoes from your yard within 24 hours of application. It's all backed by their mosquito-free guarantee. Get your first True Green Mosquito Defense application for just $39.95 or bundle your mosquito defense with a flea and tick service for just $20 more. Visit truegreen.com kick. That's t-r-u-green.com kick. Restrictions may apply. And now, enjoy the podcast. Hi, I'm Ben Mathis. Welcome to Kick-Ass News. To most Americans, the dealings of the Department of Defense are a mystery, and the Pentagon nothing more than an opaque five-sided box that they regard with a mixture of awe and suspicion. But in a new book titled Inside the Five-Sided Box, Lessons from a Lifetime of Leadership in the Pentagon, Former Secretary of Defense Ash Carter demystifies and sheds light on all that happens inside of one of the nation's most iconic and most closely guarded buildings. And on today's podcast, the 25th Secretary of Defense takes me behind the scenes to reveal the inner workings of the Pentagon, its vital mission, and what it takes to lead. He describes just how massive an organization the DoD is, how he managed a $7 billion budget, and how he recruited top tech talent to the Pentagon. Ash Carter reveals how his background as a physicist came in handy in the Pentagon and how it led him to oppose President Ronald Reagan's Star Wars program in the 80s. He discusses how he came up with the successful strategy to defeat ISIS, but cautions President Trump against pulling out of Iraq and Syria entirely. He talks about his efforts to reach out to non-traditional military recruits and his history-making decision to open all combat roles to women. Plus, Russia, China, General Pershing's desk, and much more with former Secretary of Defense Ash Carter coming up in just a moment. For 35 years, Ash Carter served in numerous jobs in the Department of Defense, most recently as the 25th Secretary of Defense under President Obama. He currently serves as the director of the Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs at Harvard University's Kennedy School and as an Innovation Fellow at MIT. He's written a new memoir titled Inside the Five-Sided Box. Lessons from a Lifetime of Leadership in the Pentagon, and today he joins me on the podcast to talk about it. Ash Carter, welcome. Thanks, Ben. Good to be here with you. I described Inside the Five-Sided Box as a memoir, but beyond that, you give readers a fascinating organizational tour of the Department of Defense and how it operates. You say in here that no institution in the world is as big, complex, or consequential as the DOD. Can you give us some numbers that put that in perspective? Sure. And you're absolutely right. This is not about me. This is a book about the Pentagon and how it works. And it kind of takes you inside the five-sided box. 
and gives you a peek down in the engine room uh, at the mechanics. And about the size, I mean, let me just give you a few metrics uh, here. We have more employees uh, in the Department of Defense, direct and indirect, than Amazon, McDonald's, Federal Express, Target, and GE combined. Wow. Huh. We, we do more R&D than Apple, Google, and Microsoft combined. We're the largest real property managers in the world, uh, managing a territory the size of the state of Pennsylvania. And so this is the largest enterprise on earth by a substantial measure. It is managerially speaking, because I was the number one, but I was also the number two, that is the COO, Chief Operating Officer of the Defense Department. And then I was the number three, the top weapons buyer and R&D manager. And um, by in all three of those jobs had to run what is the world's largest enterprise. And um, its budget is half of the federal government. Wow. It is, its budget is larger than that of most countries. It's about the size of the country of Sweden. As you said, you were weapons and tech czar and COO before taking over as Secretary of Defense. Do you think it's safe to say that you came into that post as SecDef with about as good a working knowledge of how the Pentagon works as just about anyone? Yeah, I think probably uh, among secretaries of defense, and I want to say uh, about my own experience, that we have been blessed with a lot of good secretaries of defense. I knew every single one of them going back to Bob McNamara. And they all, I've known them for years, they all would call me up, obviously not Bob, who's dead, and some others, um, and, and uh, give me support and advice when I was secretary. So there's a great brotherhood among us. But for pure experience in the Pentagon, I don't think, and in fact, I'm sure that there was no one who is, was in there and associated with the place that long. You know, I first walked, Ben, into the Pentagon, my first job in 1981, and I walked out in January of 2017. That's a pretty long time. Yeah. And in addition to being the number one, the number two, and the number three, I was all various layers down below as well. Uh, so uh, I've been in every little corner of it, and a lot of people have been in one part of it or another and, and got to be Secretary of Defense and were fine Secretaries of, of Defense, but it just so happens that um, I know every corner, I know where every part of the, every nickel of the dollar is spent <laughs> and every relationship we have around the yeah. world. It just so happens it's been my life. So I'm in a pretty good position to take the average citizen or a CEO or an interested young people thinking, young person thinking about what he or she's going to do with their life and, and take them inside and give them a tour. And that's what the book's about. And I didn't realize until I read the book that you came to the military with a background as a theoretical physicist. Did that come in handy at the DOD? Yeah, it did. I mean, it may seem sort of odd, um, <laughs> but the way I got into it was this. And there's actually a lesson in here for any people who may be listening and thinking about a career in public service. Um, I, I was a theoretical physicist. That's how I started out. I was my 20s. And the spirit of the people who taught me physics was the spirit of the Manhattan Project. Uh, 
They were the Manhattan Project generation. They were proud of what they'd done, but they also knew that they had done something very serious and that they had a responsibility for the rest of their lives to deal with some of the consequences of nuclear weapons. And they told me that. They said, all right, if, you're, if you have knowledge, you have responsibility. And uh, so one day, uh, a couple of eminent figures called me up and said, Ash, we need you to go to Washington for just one year. Uh, this is 1980. Um, and um, thus began a career that didn't last one year, but land lasted until, as I said, 2017. But for somebody who's thinking about, maybe somebody's listening to this even, thinking about where life's going to take them, you sometimes try something um, and you're not going to, you don't, I didn't intend to dedicate the rest of my life to it, but here's what I found, Ben, that was so, uh, captivating about that one year. First of all, where physics came in was I was actually useful because my knowledge made a difference in the rooms I was in. Um, and without my knowledge, decisions wouldn't have been as good. And I could mm -hmm. see that. And second, I could see that the decisions we were making, which were about the big issues of the Cold War and nuclear weapons, uh, were hugely consequential things. So you sure. put those two things together, that you, you can make a difference, and the issues are huge. And, you know, what else? That's the perfect combination for a young person. So I was captivated by it, as I think anybody would be, and that led to my whole my whole career. Now, you ask whether being physicist was useful later. Um, <clears throat> it certainly was when I was in charge of all the R&D and buying all the weapons. Mm. I knew how everything worked, um, and nobody in the defense industry or in the, any laboratory could fool me. That was useful. <laughs> but even as Secretary of Defense, and there are other backgrounds that do this for you, but one thing that science teaches you is that you can learn anything. And so when I was encountering a new problem, like what to do about ISIS or a new place I wasn't familiar with, uh, where suddenly a crisis arose or we had to do a hostage rescue or a counterterrorism uh, operation, I had the habit of mind that if I applied myself, I could learn enough about it. Mm -hmm. And I never gave up. So I think that science does teach you that not to be afraid, that nothing is beyond your knowledge as long as you work hard enough. And another place where your physics background came in handy pretty early on uh, was during that stint in the 80s, uh, you objected to the Strategic Defense Initiative, better known as Reagan's Star Wars program. From a physicist's point of view, why was Star Wars a bad idea? Well, it just wouldn't work. Uh, I wasn't saying whether it was a good idea or a bad idea, but I, I knew that excimer lasers, free electron lasers, chemical lasers— x-ray lasers. I knew what all these things were. And so I analyzed the prospects that if they were put up on big satellites in space, they could shine down and shoot ascending missiles from the Soviet Union attacking the United States if nuclear war should break out. And that would obviously be a good thing if you could do it, but you mm -hmm. couldn't do it. And in years later, 40 years later, when I was Secretary of Defense, Ben, we still don't know how to do it. Um, and you know, we, we do have missile defenses, but they're not based on lasers. They're based on rockets that go up and mm. mash into other rockets. Yeah. And they are, they are effective, but not against a 
huge threat like the Soviet Union mm-hmm. posed during uh, during the Cold War. So we still don't know how to do that. So all I said was, this ain't, this isn't going to work. <laughs> and it was, and the reason it was significant was that it was my, it was the first scientifically informed analysis based on full access to classified information of President Reagan's idea. And so it got a lot of notoriety. And as things happen in our world, even then, um, you, you are contending with something the president of the United States did. And that means that the munchkins around him uh, <laughs> try to come after you and take revenge. And that was scary for me because mm-hmm. I was a naive scientist. I had no, I was not intending to get involved in anything political. I was just, from my point of view, telling the truth. Um, and so it was a lesson in, in the political big leagues and that frightened me initially. And I thought, well, okay, that's the end of my career. I've blundered into something, but it ended up teaching me the opposite lesson, Ben. And there's something that's probably useful to remember today. But, uh, there were a lot of people, including friends of president Reagan and supporters of the Reagan administration who stood up for me. And they simply said, this guy is a scientist. He was doing his job. He was answering the question he was asked to do. Um, Everybody lay off him. And they said he did a responsible job. He did a knowledgeable job. um, And uh, that's the kind of people we want to have working on national defense. And in this case, he happened to arrive at a conclusion that was inconvenient uh, for the president. But um, that's the kind of information and analysis we need to have to have the best defense on Earth. So the thing started off scaring and actually discouraging me, but it went full circle and it came around. And and I said to myself through various people sticking up for me, I said, you know, this is really a very principled country. A lot of decent people contributing to defense. And when you hear these debates, they're not debates to the death. They're debates among honorable people around the truth. And I only say that now, and not in a partisan way. And I only say that now because uh, in some ways that seems like a bygone era from from today's right. uh, view. And you've served under several presidents, finally ending with President Obama, who do you think had the best grasp of how the Department of Defense works best and how best to utilize it? Well, on day one, as he walked into office, I would say President Bush won. Mm-hmm. Um, he had fought in World War II. Uh, he had been in the government uh, that is in the administration of President Reagan uh, for the preceding period of time. So surely on day one, he was the most knowledgeable. But, you know, people learn really fast. I can't speak about President Trump because I didn't serve under him in the book. My book mentions him very few times accordingly. Right. Um, And I can't imagine he had much knowledge. It certainly doesn't look like that. Uh, I don't see where he would have gotten it. But but, um, every president that I worked, and again, it goes from Reagan right through to Obama, uh, they were hard workers and fast learners. Uh, so let's take Obama. I wasn't his secretary of defense in his early days, but he came in. He, he had never been in the federal government before. 
Um, so did he know where all the villages in Syria were? Did he know what an F-35 was, and the F difference between F-35 and an F-18? No, uh, he didn't. Um, but by the time he left, he did. And the same, I think, is true of his predecessor, uh, President Bush II, uh, President Clinton. Uh, they all, the, the presidency sobered them up quite a bit and they worked very hard every day and it was impressive what they learned over time. So you're, here you are, your Secretary of Defense, you say, I've been doing this my whole life. I can't expect the president to know this. Sure. And you go in and you start talking to him about it and damned if he doesn't already know about it. I was always <laughs> impressed with all of them. Really? With the the degree of mastery they got over time. Mm. But at those early years are very sensitive because you can't expect them to have all that mm. mastery. And if there's a yin to the Defense Department's yang, it would certainly be the State Department. There's also a certain amount of friction that's almost inherent between those two organizations. How do you view that relationship? I really refused to have friction. Um, really? And <laughs> I, 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 yeah, I mean, well, we had disagreements sometimes. How do you do that? Yeah, John Kerry and I, but that's not friction. I yeah. mean, John Kerry and I would, ag would agree to disagree in okay. front of the president <laughs> from time to time. And uh, that's, that's, that's called giving unvarnished advice and uh -huh. the president hearing different points of view. Friction's different. I and mean, here's how I learned my lesson, Ben. I remember being an assistant secretary of defense when the Secretary of Defense was Bill Perry, who was the Secretary of Defense to um, uh, Bill Clinton. And I had a number of assistant secretaries of state who were my counterparts, because we had very few assistant secretaries of defense and they had lots of assistant secretaries of state. So your counterparts were many to one. But I'd go in and every once in a while to Bill and I'd complain. And I remember him looking at me and saying, Ash, I will never call up Warren Christopher, who was the Secretary of State at that time. I'll never call him up and complain about something our staffs can't resolve. He said, I'll just never do that. So there's no point in you coming to me and doing that. I want you to work things out yourselves. And I took that to heart. And then I, when I was secretary, I would say that to my, my staffs. Um, it, we can't have petty bureaucracy fighting. We can have debates. And I actually, Ben, on the substance of it, believe that in today's world, even in matters of war, I benefited from the inputs of the diplomats, the intelligence people, the financial people and treasury people, because the world's complicated. And if you're running a war, as I I was in Afghanistan, in Iraq, in Syria, uh, and almost wars in many other places, uh, most of those have a big political and economic dimension to them. Now, I do remember working for Caspar Weinberger in the 80s when it was a simpler world. There was only one war that we all thought about all the time, which was the big one between us and the Soviet Union, right? And that was so uh, apocalyptic that it was purely military. Mm -hmm. And Caspar Weinberger believed that we needed it. And he held uh, secret within the Defense Department all aspects of our war plans. That was the habit then. And we wouldn't share them with anyone but the President of the United States. We wouldn't share them with the State Department. 
or anybody else. And that was reasonable at that time because there was, there was almost no political and economic point after you launched nu- started a nuclear yeah. war. Um, but if you're fighting ISIS and you're defeating ISIS, we all know, and this is important right at this very moment, that they're not beaten for good if you don't work on the political and economic circumstances that right. gave them birth in the in the first place. Sure. So these days, a secretary of defense needs to have good relationships with other people around town. So it's not a luxury and it's not just a, a kindness or a courtesy. Uh, in order to do your job right for the country, you got to uh, make a team effort. We're going to take a quick break, and then I'll be back with more with former Secretary of Defense Ash Carter when we come back in just a minute. If you've been enjoying my conversation with former Secretary of Defense Ash Carter, then you should read his new book, Inside the Five-Sided Box, Lessons from a Lifetime of Leadership in the Pentagon. The 25th Secretary of Defense takes readers behind the scenes to reveal the inner workings of the Pentagon, its vital mission, and what it takes to lead. Drawn from Carter's 36 years of leadership experience in the DOD, this is the essential book for understanding the challenge of defending America in a dangerous world and imparting a trove of incisive lessons that can guide leaders in a complex organization. Facebook's Sheryl Sandberg says this book should be required reading for every citizen who wants to know more about how our country stays secure. And Henry Kissinger says this book should be essential reading for anyone concerned about the evolution that technology and political upheavals around the world impose on us. Order Inside the Five-Sided Box, Lessons from a Lifetime of Leadership in the Pentagon on Amazon, Audible, or wherever books are sold. And now, back to the show. You've been credited with the successful plan to turn the tide against ISIS in Syria and Iraq. Uh, What was your thought process when you developed that ISIS strategy? The two principal military objectives, from my point of view, were Mosul in Iraq, the second largest city in Iraq, and we had to take that back, and Raqqa in Syria, which is not a hugely consequential town in any other way except that ISIS declared that to be the caliphate's new capital. And so I had to take that too. So if you think about those two cities as kind of the, it's the, the Berlin and Tokyo of this war, uh, then how are you going to get there? And so our approach was instead, rather than doing all the infantry fighting ourselves, we'll say, all right, look, we'll train you guys. You be the infantry. You go into the cities. Our role will be to advise and accompany you on the ground, but also to bring the huge tornado of the U.S. military down upon the battlefield. And you'll get intelligence and air power and logistics and all the stuff that only we can do and will overwhelm uh, the enemy ISIS. So that was our strategy. But by the end of 2015, um, I and Joe Dunford, who was the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, had built that plan um, uh, for Mosul and Raqqa. The president had approved it. We got all the, I had countless meetings with the allies and also with the body of Iraq and Barzani of of, of, of the Kurdish Republic, which is part of Iraq, uh, and also Syrian forces. And um, basically by the time I left office 
in early 2017, it was it was all over. The, mm -hmm. We had um, surrounded those cities, and we, we, it was inevitable that we were going to yeah. we were going to take them. And then we subsequently did. Now, I, I as I mentioned earlier, I'm I'm, I'm worried that we're uh, taking our foot off the gas, mm -hmm. and um, uh, it's a mistake to now turn around and and uh, leave the place to without our influence anymore. I'm not saying we have to be fighting, sure. surely not dying there, but we need to keep our influence there simply as a matter of self-protection. Mm -hmm. We've won the war. Let's not unwin another war in Iraq. So is President Trump then justified in his assertion that ISIS, as he put it, is basically defeated? Yeah, I think so. I think the, I think, as I said, both the fact and the idea are destroyed. The only th thing you have to say is that nothing's gone forever. Uh, there are a few of these fanatics left. We pursued them down to the Euphrates, down the Euphrates Valley. I thought we were going to kill them all. Apparently we didn't. There are still some there, which is one of the reasons why we need to stay. Um, and um, these are fanatics. And so they will try again to get people on their side. And if you allow the conditions to be recreated where they can uh, get a few people on their side and then tyrannize the rest of the people, you'll have old ISIS back again. That's why I would, I think we should not leave Syria, yeah. not leave Iraq. We should stay in the game. Um, again, not fighting and dying, but assisting and enabling our friends there. These people are now, they, they fought the war we asked them to fight. They won the war. Uh, they couldn't have done it without us, uh, but they won the war. Now we want them to win the peace and to turn yeah. our backs on them at this point is, is self-defeating. Self and global terror is one of the five biggest threats you list in Inside the Five-Sided Box. Also on that list are Russia, China, Iran, and North Korea. And I want to try to get to each of these in the time we have. First off, Russia. It almost seems like there are too many problems to keep track of. Putin is testing us on so many different fronts, whether it's cyber warfare, the election, Syria, uh, aggression in the Arctic, Ukraine, and potentially other former Soviet satellite states, violating the nuclear test ban, withdrawing from nuclear treaties. With so many balls in the air, where do we focus our resources with Russia? Well, yeah, it's a, it's a, it, it, he, you're exactly right. He's, he's all over the globe and all over the strategic map, but there is a common denominator to Putin. And I say this because I have been in meetings with Vladimir Putin since 19, I think 1993. Putin feels that the Soviet Union's collapse was a catastrophe for the Russian people. Uh, and he's entitled to that view, obviously. He um, believes that the United States has made mistakes around the world and he enumerates them uh, toppling governments and then not knowing what to do. So he makes some reasonable points that I don't necessarily agree with, but you can understand. But here's where Vladimir Putin becomes tough to work with. He views thwarting the United States as an aim of his foreign policy in itself. Now, if he wants to talk to me about Syria, okay, we can talk about Syria. We can have different views. Maybe we can build a bridge between his view and my view in some way of of, of, of reaching common ground. Uh, same thing if we're talking about terrorism, same thing if we're talking about North Korea, uh, China, whatever. 
but if his objective is, so to speak, excuse my expression, to screw the United States, <laughs> that's an objective I can't, you know, you, you, you can't compromise with that, Ben. I don't know how yeah. to build a bridge to that. And that's what makes him yeah. so difficult. And that's why you have to push back. Mm -hmm. We didn't have a war plan for Russia because when the Soviet Union ended, we didn't need our Soviet and Warsaw Pact war plan anymore. Mm -hmm. And it looked like they were either on the ropes permanently or were going to kind of turn into a democracy or at least some sort of friend. And that's what everybody hoped. But when I was Secretary of Defense, um, I said, it's, it's time we have a war plan for Russia again. I'm sad to say that, uh, but we need one and NATO needs one. That's when we began to put the, the additional forces into Europe. And obviously, this is not something we say a whole lot about in detail publicly, but we began to build again a comprehensive war plan uh, for Russia. And then in the cyber area, you mentioned that. Um, there's a lot we need to do there. Uh, the Obama administration didn't do enough, and the Trump administration hasn't mm -hmm. done enough. The United States has not done enough, and this guy hasn't learned any lesson uh, at all. So I think that he will not um, stop pushing. It's just not his nature until and unless we push back. And that doesn't mean starting World War III, but it means applying counterpressure and uh, checking his moves. That's why one of the reasons, besides ISIS, that I wouldn't simply walk out of Northeast Syria, that has become our, our strategic uh, uh, chess piece with respect to Syria. We didn't have um, any leverage over Syria. Now we do. Why would you let go of your leverage given that both Iran and Russia, who are our antagonists, are trying to um, uh, establish their own position in Syria. Why would you surrender the U.S. position? So we need sure. a lot of pushing back. And in this book, you also warn that the U.S. is beginning to lose its technological advantage over countries like China and Russia. To address that problem, you became the first defense secretary to reach out to Silicon Valley in, I think, 20 years. What was your pitch to top tech talent? There are two things that make our military the finest fighting force the world has ever known, Ben. One is our people, but the other is our technology. And uh, in the old days, we used to do all the technology ourselves. We just give we most of the things of importance, like the Internet and communication satellites and jet engines and all this stuff, was done by the Pentagon. Now there's a lot of technology outside of the Pentagon, and we need to reach out and get it and get it used as appropriate to defend our people mm -hmm. and make a better world. That's our, that's our job. And to do that, we have to have a reasonable relationship with the tech community. And the passage of time had led to a certain amount of estrangement, or in some cases, they just never worked with us before. And then there was things like Edward Snowden that created a suspicion about us. And I needed to try to patch that up and say to people, look, let's agree to disagree about Edward Snowden. But we do have a common mission here. We both believe, we all believe in freedom. We believe in civilization. We believe in protecting uh, our people. Uh, uh, if you are concerned about what your government is doing, 
come on in and make us do the right thing. Uh, the government is not a thing apart. The government is just us. If you're concerned about how we're going to use artificial intelligence, for example, then come in and tell us how to do it responsibly and ethically. And that worked. Those arguments worked um, because uh, tech people are uh, have the same thought process I had way back when I started and when I described. I wanted to do things of consequence. Every young person wants to. And they want to be able to make a difference. And, you know, all I had was my knowledge of physics. What they have is knowledge of technology. And uh, so I say, come on in and just do it for one year. The same argument they, my seniors used on me. I say, come in for just one year. You can keep your hair orange. You can keep <laughs> the jewelry in your nose and your ears. I'm not going to make you try to look like me, a guy in a suit or with a flag lapel yeah. pin or uh, somebody in a uniform. You, knock, you, can, you, can, you can be yourself. And I said, come in and work on one project or for one year. And I created a sort of rotation program that will them, allow them to do this. And I said, Here, here's what I guarantee you. I guarantee you when you walk out, if you walk out after a year, or probably, that you this will be the thing you're proudest of having done your entire life. Mm -hmm. um, you're going to be dealing with issues of life and death and uh, freedom and slavery and your government doing the right thing or the wrong thing, uh, all that's really meaningful. There's nothing nobler than, than uh, a public service, in my judgment. And, of course, security is the thing without which no other good things in life can be had if you're not safe. And as part of your effort to attract the best talent to the DOD, you advocated for greater outreach to members of the LGBT community, single parents, and other non-traditional recruits. And one of your major policy changes was your decision to open combat to women. You say in the book that you kept that plan a secret, even from the president, right up until the moment that you announced it. Why? I wanted this to be a professional, sober, military personnel decision. Okay. It's not a it's not a political decision. And he wouldn't do this. A, a president wouldn't do this. But White House staffs, you know, they could they could say they could try to take political credit for it. I didn't want anybody True. getting political credit for anything huh. because that would only mess things up. That would make something that was kind of a no brainer into a political thing. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't social policy. You know, I, I tell people who say talk about social policy, I say, you, you not only have that wrong, you've got it upside down. It would be social policy to exclude people, not on the basis of their military qualifications, but for some social reason. That would be social policy. Military yeah. policy is to have the best people who are the most qualified to do the most solemn job uh, that you can have, which is defending the country. Well, I'm kind of ending by going backwards here, but I have to tell you that my favorite chapter title was from the first chapter. It's called How Not to Waste $700 Billion a Year. <laughs> and this gets into your role as a chief of procurement at the Pentagon. Uh, why do you think the Pentagon is prone to these accusations of fiscal irresponsibility, brings to mind the $1,000 toilet seat, or I think now there's a $10,000 toilet sure. seat and those kind yeah, of crazy well, expenditures? It, it, because it does happen, yeah, and it's unacceptable. And it, it's number one; it, it's happened a lot, but it happens. 
uh, and, and second, it's completely unacceptable. How can I go out and ask the taxpayer for about $750 billion a year with a straight face, which I, you know, was happy to do, uh, knowing that the money wasn't used well? I, you can't have that. You can't, you, you can't do that. It's a constant battle to make sure that it is wisely used. However, I do believe it can be done, Ben. And what the book basically says is, here's how you can do it right. Even in war, even in the, in the very fast pace uh, of war, and I gave some examples of there, some fighter aircraft and some submarines and so forth that were in, in very messy shape when I took office, and how I uh, applied myself to trying to improve them so that they were no longer behind schedule, that they were no longer cost overrunning, and then give people some of the tricks of the trade that go with um, uh, good program management, which include things like contracting. Now, you may not think that's very interesting, but if you think about it, that $750 billion I spoke of, $400 billion of that is spent on contracts. Huh. The rest is spent on on paying soldiers and so forth. Interesting. But most of it is spent contracted out because, remember, we don't make anything in the Pentagon. Right, right. We count on private <laughs> industry. So everything is contracted out. So how those contracts are structured is really important. Mm -hmm. And people – and I try to make that interesting to people. Um, I, 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 it, it is certainly very – it will be easily apparent to them that it's – it's very important. Um, but I say here's, you know, if you ever wonder, the whole book is like that. Have you ever wondered how you buy a fighter jet? Have you ever wondered how you buy an aircraft carrier? Have you ever wondered how you um, ship stuff to Afghanistan or build 258 bases in Afghanistan in one summer, which is what I did in 2010? Uh, how does all this stuff get done? We talk about all the politics of it and the geopolitics of it. But down in the engine room where I was for a substantial part of my uh, career. How, do, how, do you, how does all this stuff get done? I, I think curious people mm -hmm. and leaders, CEOs, um, future leaders, future soldiers, young people, future technologists will all find that interesting. How does this place really work? Before we go, I just have to ask you, Ash, what was the coolest part of being SecDef? Was it working at General John Blackjack Pershing's desk or flying around in the Defense Secretary's plane E-4B? It, it's it's easy answer. It's the troops. You got to stand okay. out in the desert with these kids yeah. and talk, talk to them, tell them why you're proud of them, why they're doing something that is an absolutely essential, and just look in their eyes. And then if you get a chance and you go to their home base, talk to mom, talk to dad, talk to a young spouse, um, it really lifts you up. Uh, that's the best part of the job. I, you know, all the hardware and, you know, the theaters of war and uh, situation room in the White House and all that's kind of interesting. But the, yeah. the, the troops are really what keep you going. Yeah, but being able to sit at General Pershing's desk is still pretty cool. That ain't bad, huh? <laughs> uh, yeah, that, it's a very big desk. <laughs> Gives you a sense of history at the very least. Place looks the same as it did. Uh, I have a picture of the book of Robert McNamara sitting there during the Johnson administration. <laughs> wow. <laughs> same desk, same table, same chairs. Long time. 
Well, again, the book is called Inside the Five-Sided Box, Lessons from a Lifetime of Leadership in the Pentagon. Ash Carter, thanks for talking with me. Thanks for having me, Ben. Enjoyed it. Thanks again to Ash Carter for coming on the podcast. Order his new book, Inside the Five-Sided Box, Lessons from a Lifetime of Leadership in the Pentagon, on Amazon, Audible, or wherever books are sold. Be sure to subscribe to Kick-Ass News on Apple Podcasts if you haven't already. And if you like what you're hearing, then rate and review us while you're there. Five-star reviews are the easiest way for new listeners to find us. Don't forget to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at at kickassnewspod. And feel free to email me with your thoughts, questions, and suggestions at comments at kickassnews.com. Until next time, I'm Ben Mathis, and thanks for listening to Kick-Ass News.